This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. I mean, this is the first time it's happened in 9,000 games, I believe, for, for Hawkeye to fail. I can honestly say I'm sat in the, I'm stood in the stand and myself and my coaches, and I know Chris Wilder and Alan Nil at the time, we never knew the ball across the line. When I go home late at night, this is a song that I really like to sing right now, so I'll play it for you. It's uh, called My Old Man. Welcome to the My Old Man Said podcast. I'm David Michael, the editor of MyOldManSaid.com. Joining me for the first podcast since the restart of the Premier League, Mr. Dan Rogers from the Villa Underground. Welcome. Hello. And Mr. Chris Budd. Hello. We are back. We spent uh, the Sheffield United game in Match Club rather than Villa Park. And uh, I think it's it probably as, as pleasant experience as we could have had uh, considering the circumstances. It was lovely. Dan, did you enjoy Match Club? It's replaced Twitter, so... Uh, that in itself is a, is a result. <laughs> mm, that's the review. That is a big home win. So if you, if you don't know what Match Club is, uh, well, the first rule of uh, Match Club is you can't talk about Match Club. Mom's patrons know what we're talking about. And the feedback's been uh, excellent. So thank you uh, for all your comments. Uh, Match Club is an excellent innovation. Thank you. These are some of the uh, members of Match Club. Brilliant idea. Great idea. Thanks for setting it up. Mom's Match Club has been a success. Much better innovation than VAR. In the bar low, then. <laughs> Genius. Genius, somebody said. Match Club, great. Much better than Twitter hysteria. Yeah. So if you are a, a My Old Man Said patron uh, and you haven't uh, joined us yet, uh, do uh, sort that one out before the Chelsea game. It was great to talk to people genuinely after the game. And uh, I think... During the game, after the game, before the game. And uh, it was it was genuinely a nice step back from from the, the chaos and delirium of Twitter. So uh, 
Yeah, there definitely wasn't as much shouting as on Twitter. <laughs> I fully endorse it. We like to uh, keep it a private club. We're not bothered about uh, numbers and views and likes and all that kind of shit. It's uh, just something uh, we set up for the good people. As they say in the, in, in Fight Club, uh, after Match Club, we all started seeing things differently. You can watch a game now with Villa, just be in Match Club and, and leave it cleansed and uh, go back to your real life without being too depressed about what you've been reading and all the uh, toxicity. Anyway, let's uh, get on with the show. Uh, coming up in this show, well, it's the uh, beginning of a, I was going to say brave new world, but uh, kind of a weird new world as the... Uh, season kicked off and we had our first experience of a well i think what's the limit of people you can have 300 people in villa park these are obviously a mixture of uh, players staff press boil it down it's just like a ghost town so we had our first experience of that also uh, coming up uh, we go through the uh, villa news there's been an update on mr grealish's uh, matter during lockdown also the uh, the next round of uh, games on tv have been announced as well going into the three points villa fans favorite words or favorite abbreviation ffp has a uh, there's a revelation about that uh, we'll also look into what happened uh, as arsenal uh, flew to uh, manchester city and a fan supporter european group has something to say about uh, how broadcasters are representing uh, games and also the the need for supporter groups to be involved in the conversations when it comes to fans returning back to stadiums. Should we just crack into it? So have you, unless you've got anything uh, you want to say, what have you been up to? Anything exciting? Just hanging out, hanging out in Match Club, really. That's my life. Basically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, anyway, let's let's crack on with it. Uh, first villain news, uh, Mr. Grealish. Uh, there was one part of the lockdown scandal, scandal, which uh, the main scandal was, where, you know, doing an NHS support video and then the next day just uh, mm. going against everything. You preach to the nation in the video. That was one part of it. And the next part was uh, the fact that he hit cars and uh, a few people thought that that was just kind of brushed under the carpet. But, you know, the police were investigating it, it and this is what happened. So he's now uh, due in Birmingham Magistrates Court. I think it's the 25th of August. He's been accused of hitting parked cars and also fleeing the scene. So driving without due care and failing to stop at the scene. So uh, we will see what happens there. I mean, it's interesting because it's the 25th of August. So Villa's season would have been all being good, would have finished by then. So if he decides that he wants to go to Manchester United or wherever <laughs> and he signs up and the magistrates, uh, the judges are all Villa fans. They might say, well, five years, mate. And an extra two years for that dreadful haircut. That you yeah, an extra two years for wearing a Cornish pasty in your head uh, <laughs> in the Sheffield United game. So that's five years for the crimes and then an extra two for the Cornish pasty. Mm -hmm. So Villa would have pocketed the cash. And uh, if it's Manchester United, their player will be uh, <laughs> behind uh, lock and key. Bail will be £150 million. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so Manchester United, if I was you, I wouldn't bother buying him. It's going to yeah. be a, a costly long-term investment. Incarcerated. Mm. Exactly. The second thing of Villa News, Sky Sports, they've, they've, got a, they've got a full house of the next games uh, announced for televisation. They're all televised, but uh, Sky Sports have got the Liverpool game at Anfield and then Villa's uh, home games against Manchester mm. United mm. and Crystal Palace. So I'm pre presuming they're on the paid service there, the old Sky. 
Yes. We'll never be on Amazon, will we? We might get one game. They might get the last round of matches, actually. I wonder if they'll get the last day of the season and run them all. I think they've only got four games. That's it. Why do you think Sky are picking on Villa in these games? Do they do they see him as... This is Sky's classic working on their great escape fixture list. Yeah, because yeah. Liverpool, Liverpool by then will be done and dusted, I would imagine, in terms of winning the league. In terms of viewing figures, we're still going to be up there as one of the biggest, you know, we're not the biggest, clearly, but we're still one of the better, you know, certainly in the top 10 of TV draws in terms of fan base and, you know, global marketing. When you look at some of the smaller sides, you sort of Burnley's mm. in this world and Bournemouth and yeah, so they must- Villa have got a much more UK-wide and international mm. fan. The only other Villa news, uh, really, they, I think this is the main surprise of the game was, uh, I mean, obviously they were doing the NHS and uh, Black Lives Matters uh, tributes on the shirts, but uh, when the kickoff whistle was blown, there was a surprise uh, kneel during the game because we don't play the national anthem, do we? So they can't uh, they can't do it, uh, such gestures uh during that period, which I thought I thought that was more poignant and powerful than the normal kind of token gesture stuff that happens. But uh, obviously, there's a lot of things connected uh, to this. And I think something that Dean Smith said was quite organic on the day, was it not? It sounds like, yeah, I think he'd, he'd mentioned after the game that it was, it'd come from like the Villa players and the Sheffield United players were both in agreement and, oh, this is what we're going to do. I think then obviously the referee would have got involved and said, is, is anything going to happen? And essentially, you know, do I need to liaise with the FA on what we're allowed to do? And I think Dean Smith and the players would have probably just said, well, this is what we're doing. Yeah, It's probably in your best interests to to just let us, you know, we, we'll just get on with it. Because it was only, what was it, about maybe five or six seconds? It wasn't like, you know, a minute long or anything. The draft joined in, which you'd expect him to. And I think every, everybody got on the same page without it being like a really forced sort of FA initiative, you know, when they have like minutes of applauses or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, these things, if they're suddenly starting to, you know, be considered at uh, around offices and tables uh, of the FA, then it's like, well, it's not really a genuine gesture. So uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Uh, right, going on to uh, the three points. Uh, the first point, number one. One, it was a FFP was was almost uh, an obsession with Villa fans for the last uh, three or four years. I, I would say yeah. <laughs> here's some news we could have done with about three years ago. <laughs> UEFA have put financial fair play FFP on ice. Essentially, what they've said is they're taking emergency measures because they want to uh, neutralize the potential for you know loss of revenue because obviously clubs' propensities to earn money has obviously dropped. Uh, in some respects, they're actually rebating Sky because there's no fans there. But do fans uh, get lower prices on uh, subscriptions for, Don't for get TV? Don't get me started on that. Mm. <laughs> that's really been one of those things that's knocked me off through this whole thing. Yeah, anyway, so to cover the increased uh, losses caused by uh, football shutdown, but at, at the moment, it, I think it's more like sources confirm at this moment, UEFA sources confirm that uh, clubs will be allowed losses in excess of €30 million Euros, as long as they show that this was caused by falls in revenues because of the shutdown. Creative accounting, here we go. Yeah, I mean, I mean, especially with um, you know, the bigger sides with huge stadiums, you know, you sort of Barcelona's who are getting, you know, 90,000 every week, United getting mm. 75 and people like that, they are going to make huge difference. I know Tottenham at their new ground, their revenue will have probably their sorry, their, you know, their match day revenue has probably doubled from the days of White yeah. Hart Lane. So and there's two contexts to that, I suppose. Is one that you've got the the impact of COVID with a club like Tottenham who reportedly have asked for government help. Yeah. as well uh, around the, the indebtedness they now found and find themselves in and I was reminded when we were looking at the show notes actually that the Financial Times ran an article probably about a, a year ago maybe a year three months ago about how 
UEFA was under massive pressure, basically, that they were trying to enforce the FFP rules. But the biggest clubs could essentially, uh, it's an allegation, but the, the, the big clubs could put huge legal pressure on, on UEFA and uh, frustrate it and, and come from every angle, really. So yeah. this, is, this must be music to their ears to discover that they've, they've essentially got an out on the basis that, that the revenue is, is, is dropped for for this period. Yeah, I mean, uh, Phil Shaw, uh, who was on the last show, actually, uh, he puts in uh, Match Club, uh, will this mean if we got relegated, would the owners then suddenly uh, spend a go-go to get ourselves mm-hmm. out, which... Uh, if we go down, we'll, I think we'll have enough money in the in the bank just from the Grealishes and uh, the McGins and then anybody else, anybody else that gets snapped up as well. So mm-hmm. I don't think it will really affect us. Uh, maybe the, when we're you know over the next uh, six, seven, eight years while we're down there in the Championship, uh, it will factor in. <laughs> we're down in League One. What's in League? I don't. I, that's in Leeds, of course. I don't like. I don't like even talking about this. So, what happens if we're getting in the championship? Because at the moment, why get depressed now? Because it's such a big pile of shit. If we go down into the championship, that that's you know, that's save that for a rainy day. And the and the AFL, as we know from past experience, will find a way to shoot their entire league in the foot anyway. <laughs> yes. Point number two. Dan Rogers, you talk about this one because this is one that you flagged up about uh, Arsenal's uh, Arsenal's aviation problems. This one caught my eye as someone who has flown the route from Manchester to London, which is the most pointless air route in all of the world. Because it's about, about what, half an hour, fifteen minutes, yeah, door to door, and which is fine. But it surprised me with Arsenal that they they flew from Stansted to Man City uh, less than three hours before kickoff. Now this was on depending on when you're listening to this podcast, that the weather in the UK was absolutely dreadful. And there's some weird things around it as well. You know, the chefs prepared the meal at the airport, Burger King. Join the queue at Weatherspoon. Join the queue at Weatherspoons, yeah. But that, that's a flight that, I mean, jokes aside, could have easily have been diverted on the night. And um, more to the point is that they look like a team that had been bundled onto a plane they looked sluggish, had two injuries inside 20 minutes. So some question marks around, you know, that the toil, albeit a short flight, is, you know, it was, it was the duration and the time they left themselves. From my chats with the uh, the Premier League, the executive director, uh, Bill Bush, he was talking about when, when they were talking about the neutral grounds and the mm. plans to potentially, you know, play these games uh, in neutral venues, they were looking at Southampton mainly because of... Uh, Proximity to the ground, probably. Exactly, the airport being close to the mm. ground. So, And the idea was you could fly in and out, and that was kind of safer than, uh, you know, driving and uh, traditional uh, coaches. It's nonsense. But when they say there's no home advantage now, I disagree from that respect, because you've obviously just given a good example of what Arsenal uh, encountered. But Villa have mm. got, they've got a game against Chelsea. Not only have they had an extra game of preparation mm. of this strange mm. scenario, but they know the routine now under COVID at Villa Park. So they have that familiarity with that, which is part of the home advantage. It's not just crowd, it's familiarity with your surroundings. But, you know, there's a good chance that Chelsea will probably fly, you know, fly from London to Birmingham to get to the game. I think home advantage for Villa in these three out of the first four games at Villa Park, when you have that familiarity, you've got to take advantage. You've got to be, I mean, now we have to beat Chelsea because as we'll discuss in uh, the Sheffield United uh, talk that, you know, that that was an opportunity ultimately to, to get a win. But you'd be astonished if you were to hear that, say, for instance, with Chelsea, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a late afternoon Sunday kickoff, I know. But, you know, they, if, you do, if you were to learn that they hadn't left uh, London till quarter past one on Sunday, 
you would be like, well, that's ridiculous, you know. But then, but then, if they went on to beat us anyway, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but we'll we'll cross that bridge in match club. <laughs> <laughs> Point number three: uh, the fan supporter Europe group, which is the European equivalent of the Football Supporters Association here in the UK. Uh, my old man said he's members of both. They kind of they have the ear of UEFA, so they issued a, a statement saying declaring that supporter groups should very much be included in the conversation in terms of when football fans return back into stadiums. Because I mean, as I've written a few times on the website uh, we've been very much left on the sidelines when the broadcasters and uh, leagues have discussed resurrecting football which is still a debate uh, to be had in terms of should they have done i mean i think you know our views uh, clearly and having watched that first game it's not football is it let's face it rubbish yeah they, they said that attempts by broadcasters to replace or imitate the unique atmosphere produced uh by fans, uh, you know, augmented reality technology, pre-recorded chants, and other forms of artificial support represent a rebuke to match-going fans, which is essentially an insult to them. And I, I, I look at these video walls and things, and I just, you know, it just makes fans just to be these like, I don't know, like hapless mm. window dressing or something. It's downgrades supporters so much. I mean, what I thought was quite amusing at the Etihad was. Which always gets seen and referred to as the empty had. Man City had fans on the screens at both ends of the ground and they still couldn't fill the screens. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> they still had FA logo, like Premier League logos in the empty squares. I thought that is just absolutely priceless. My favourite uh, from our game with the with Sheffield United was that the the trolling of their trolling of their fans with the by putting their fan mosaic up, if you like, of to show their reaction to the non-Nylon goal. So we'll we'll get to that. <laughs> the, the look of horror. I'm so glad it was their fans and not us. I'm glad they, you know, they said something about that. Uh, this kind of art, you know, fake artifice. It is yeah. kind of, uh, you know, you get to the point where they're trying to make it. Oh, actually, we don't need the fans. This is kind of good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get to that. But there's a full statement. The full statements on the website uh, if you want to read that. Uh, before we get on, I just want to uh, say, as always, a big, big thanks for uh, the patrons for joining up this week and uh, also uh, for upping pledges. Patrons will know there's a tier system, and uh, that also applies to uh, Match Club, where you get uh, a bit more functionality uh, if you're in at a higher tier. So thanks to uh, Steve Walton, James Wayhill, Phil Shaw, the great Phil Shaw, Jags as well, Liam O'Brien and James Burt for upping their pledges. And then uh, thank you very much for joining up, Brian Ralph, Kieran, Greg, Kev Holloway, Leon Wilde, Richard Morgan, Arnold Spleen and Campbell Naylor for joining up as well and uh, also getting access to uh, Match Club. You can go onto the uh, site, uh, uh, click on Patron, and uh, I'm going to re-spruce that up so there's more details on Match Club, etc. But uh, just click on Patron for now on the menu bar and uh, the details will be there. Thank you very much. Right then, the uh, Sheffield United game. First game back in the Premier League. First game in the COVID times. Mm. saw the team sheets there was a fake one going around initially which actually looked a decent lineup to be honest yeah that's actually the team that i predicted <laughs> it, was, it was the team i published on my website so <laughs> <laughs> so yeah there was a slight edit should we say an, an hour before uh, kickoff <laughs> yeah well i i because uh, chris sent me it from uh somebody who should know better and uh <laughs> not naming names <clears throat> we'll get you later 
But uh, yeah, I, I put it up on Facebook, but I just quickly put maybe dot dot dot. Same. <laughs> and then uh, on Instagram, just for you know, you can just put anything up there on the story. But I left it off Twitter because I can't. I, I I had my doubts. Put it that way because mm. the font did the font did look a bit shonky. <laughs> and uh, but the thing is, if uh, you if the first if that team sheet had been the actual team sheet, we would have thought that it would have been a fake, and uh, somebody was big time trolling us because it was uh logical in hindsight when you think about player fitness and who's responded better then obviously there's going to be a few people sitting it out uh, who you may have expected because it's not just uh, who's the best player it's what their condition is at the time but the bigger thing was uh, Sheffield United had John Fleck and uh their center back uh, Jack O'Connell out so you thought oh, actually we could win this uh and and especially the way we started, I thought we started pretty well, Mister Bud. We did. We came out of the traps pretty well. I thought we had intent. We we sort of moved the ball around reasonably well. Obviously, I think Horahan had a snapshot. The keeper made a smart save. Davis had the header, didn't he, at the back post, which should have scored. Was, I thought he should have scored. To be honest, I thought if he actually gets there, which he did, he's done the hard work. You've got to keep your header down from there, really. That's my. That's been my thing about Davis. Is especially uh, let's go back. Uh, it was against Norwich, wasn't it, in the Championship when he when he started and he yeah, compl- and he really just took completely demonised them. I mean, we 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 scored a few goals on that day, now, and it was down to him really. Yeah, he bullied them, and he bullied um, you know, he bullied the Sheffield backline. To be fair, you know, I think most people were surprised to see him start, but actually he. Within about 15 minutes, everybody was sort of, he was the standout sort of, ooh, hang yeah. on a minute, Davis looks strong, he looks like lean, you know, he was mobile, he was really causing them problems, put himself about as well. And when he came on earlier on in the season, he, you know, he, he can take people on as well as there is a bit yeah, of, yeah. Uh, there's a bit of dimension to his game. The only thing that's lacking is there's just, not, I don't think he's got that predatory instinct or that killer instinct because it's my time to come in. It's my time to come in. You, you, you're absolutely right to say that because he scores the goal that Algarzi squares. Yeah, he, absolutely. Uh, and and I, and I, I like what I see with Davis. I do. I think I've got a lot of time for him. What do you think it is? He's got to believe in himself. But he was. He, he didn't read what was happening, and it was. You know, the, the way that that ball was. It was a fantastic burst from Grealish and a, he, for, for El Ghazi to run onto. There was only one place El Ghazi could put that ball, and he put it there. Yeah. And he didn't read that quick enough for me. Yeah. I mean, he was sent in with pace, but it doesn't matter. He should have been there. Yeah. He's not somebody. You look at Aguero, and you're thinking that he's got a voice in his head. Just telling him you got to score, you got to score, you got to score, you got to score. Mm-hmm. With with Davis, you you don't think he's got it in him. He's just he just wants to put in a good shift and put in a good performance. <laughs> yeah, that that kind of moment. That's a that's a goal scorer's goal. Yeah, I that's... like him. And that there was one in the second half, wasn't there? Where uh, both the chances to talk about in the second half, but it was it was the opportunity where he he hammers it towards goal and the Henderson saves it with with one fist. Yeah, um, yeah. that that was another one where I thought, you know, a, a top striker takes that opportunity you know yeah, they, they I was actually the um, a chance yeah the, I the, I actually watched the replay again after the game and and today and I think he did okay but if I was being critical of Davis and it's a little bit like when you hear about penalties being saved mm. when he's that close to the the keeper 
you've got two places you should put it. You've either got to go high into the roof of the net or slam it under the goalkeeper. And the you know low. you make the keeper go, go up low. or he's got to go up or down. He puts it at a good height where the goalie can kind of put his hand out. He gives the keeper a chance. Whereas I just think mm. a top striker there, either side foots there it, it at pace, yeah, in the bottom corner, or he lifts it into the top corner, and the goalie wouldn't have mm. got it. There's a third option actually. You can do what Gabby used to do and miss kick it, and then it would go in because it shanks in. The, the, the keeper didn't hasn't got a clue where it's going. Yeah, so you end up lobbing the goalie from like a yard. Yeah. Unless it's against the blues where it just automatically hits the back of the net. That's what I'm saying. He would never have a, a clean finish, but it would go in, <laughs> but it wasn't, it was never in, it was never emphatic, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the moments, aren't they? Those are the fine mm-hmm. margins, you know, the first half header, the, the ball from El Ghazi, the, the, the one and we should... shared across the team, didn't you think? Yeah, that? Just, I thought that, just not you know, with Hurahan's effort, with McGinn's effort. The McGinn one's one of those where I think McGinn after two or three games, because you know, I think the commentator described it as it comes to him on the edge of the box and his his body shape, you know where it's gonna go. So the keeper's positioning is already there. It's a bit of a Hollywood save. He you know, he hits it well, but you think if McGinn puts his laces through that and puts it in the other corner, the goalie's not even gonna move. Yeah. Just one final thing on Davis, but before we move on, uh, one train of thought is, you know, if he if he gets a goal or two, that'll give him confidence. But mm, yeah. but but you're also thinking, does he have the attributes to actually be a good player in a, in two up front? But I mean, people were calling out for two up front in in this I game. So. I am. And I think he's a I think he's a brilliant foil for someone else. Yeah. If you've got him with a guy who can run in behind, dangerous. You can see every reason why we need to go up two up front. And I thought you saw that when we, when Davis was was withdrawn and we we brought some matter on. But you have to then sacrifice a midfielder, and I don't think we're so confident with our midfield. To lose to lose the extra man. I think the only the only way Villa could do it is would be to probably play a back three wing backs three in the middle and two up front and you'd, and that and that two up front would probably be, have to be like Grealish behind Davis. I think that's the only way you could accommodate, accommodate a front two. I mean, we have to factor in obviously the fitness situation, but I don't, you know, do you blame Smith or, or or is it the players? Are they too were they too passive in this situation? Because you're in a situation where we need to win games. Mm. And people look at the yeah. table. People look at the table, and they'll make excuses and say, "Oh, Sheffield United, you know, they're they're going for you know Europa League, whatever. Could get in the Champions League." But the reality is, they were missing two of their, let's say, better players. Mm-hmm. Well, they're two of their two best players this season, and yeah. they weren't really going for it. No. And they no, were they were there before. to be beaten. And if we had a prop, you know, if we had a, I wasn't going to say proper striker. Oh, I was going to play say proper striker. Let's say a proper finisher. I think we win that game. Yeah, I think so. And, and this is the problem. You, you can't go. Oh, you know, Sheffield United quite high up in the table. Uh, you know, points not that bad. It, we're we're not in that stage now. We have to win games. And by the way, you know, you look at the fixture list, and it's Manchester United, it's Liverpool, it's Chelsea, it's Arsenal. We've got to put some of these teams to the sword. Yeah. I would agree with that, and and I think that, that that that's borne out in the. I mean, when we were talking in match club afterwards, I, I I do, and having reflected on it, I thought that this might be one that we will look back upon as one that got away. And I put that in my tweet and, and in my article afterwards that, um, yeah, the the percentage of possession was slightly more in Sheffield United's favour, but actually we we had twice as many. Uh, sorry, three uh, twice as many shots as they did. We had, you know, they only had one shot on target. We had three times as many corners as they did. We had six shots. They had one. Yeah. Yeah, and and my my feeling across the game was, and this at, at the opening of what you just said there was around our our approach. I, I never felt like we were we built up a head of steam against them. No. Um. Uh, I. But I, at the same, sorry, at the same time to back you up, I you know you look at the possession. It's it's kind of whatever because I felt that we were the team 
asking more of the questions. I agree. And I, and I have to say, since the Lambert years, I've never been really interested in possession. Yeah. <laughs> you can have as much of it as you want, but if someone's got 1% and they win, it's that's the end of it. I attribute some of the way we played to lack of fitness. I thought you saw that in McGinn badly. You know, we had bursts of where you thought, oh, that's exactly what we need. And then chronic lack of, of match sharpness. Um, and the other part was was what I what I just said was that I never felt like we built up a head of steam. Is, is that down to a lack of fans in the stadium? Is that down to, again, match sharpness and that drive? Uh, for me, I think we were very, very conservative after 65, 70 minutes. I think that the, the point became more important than the win. Well, so, you know, the sub- substitutes had zero impact on the game, didn't they? I'd sort of taken the same stances down and tweeted it this morning that you you would have never watched that game as a neutral and thought, "Oh, Villa are the team who need to win this." You know, this you wouldn't think that was a game in hand for a team in the bottom three and as a big opportunity. I think you know the, the being the first game back and the lack of fitness definitely plays into it. The lack of fans, I think, would have really pulled Villa through. Certainly in the second half, you, you have to give Sheffield United a certain amount of credit in it. There, they've got the second best defence in the league but I just thought that we never statistically really went for them properly you know we never had like a concerted amount of pressure parking what we know about their their season form on the day they they weren't very expansive they didn't threaten I think I think we were too conservative and um yeah it's an opportunity missed um, and then yeah that's the benefit of hindsight isn't it I guess yeah but we said we, we've we played very deep you know Jack was taking the ball you know, in his own half, Louise was very deep. We almost need the whole team just needed to step twenty yards further up the field and set up base camp on the halfway line because the likes of Sharp and that. I think Mings had his number. McBurney isn't going to run running behind. Um, you could have played a slightly higher line and actually really forced the game. But we were almost happy to slow the game down a bit, which suits Louise, and I'm sure we'll come on to Louise. But actually, that game with how. Sheffield are set up when they don't have the ball with a, essentially it's almost like a flat five you have to play at pace and we just you know that's yeah. been the word hasn't it throughout the whole season is our lack of pace in both across mm. the ground in terms of just raw speed which we, we really missed the likes of Gilbert and players like that who can just give you a bit of punch and get you up the field quickly and also the the, the, the tempo of the game and I know that's hard first game but you look at how sort of City played later on in the evening against Arsenal and they were it was so easy for them but when they had to mm. they slow a game down to be efficient and then they get into the final third and go bang 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 and two three passes they've pulled you apart and scored the, the difference between the two, the two, it would be my observation between Man City, Arsenal, and, and Villa Sheffield United was that Man City, I think, are a, I want, <laughs> we were talking about training ground players, but Man City are a training ground team. I think that they can, they can take you apart in that way. Yeah, no, in terms of Manchester City, I, I, I think if every game this season was played behind closed doors, they'd probably win the league. Yeah, thump everyone. The main reason is, and I, you know, I've said this uh, over the last few podcasts about uh, no crowd, you lose some intensity, and and uh, the speed of the game goes down. And I was on Talksport, uh, and I asked Danny Mills this about: Do you think without a crowd, the uh, the intensity will drop because you know the players aren't playing for anybody and they're not being boiled on? And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, it'll drop a little bit, but I he, I don't think he." Uh, he realizes how much it does drop because we witnessed it, in, you know, in both of those games. Without a shadow, and I think the technically better teams play well. I think when it when it the pace does drop, if if that intensity is not there, then you've got to take advantage of it and, and force the issue in it. And Villa, to me, were a bit disappointed in that respect. Yes, yeah, Smith Smith had mentioned in his one of his pre-match interviews, actually, quite interestingly, about they'd been discussing with the players, and I think. It might have been Sterling who mentioned it as well before the, the two games that the um, Smith had mentioned that 
he was trying to get this sort of intrinsic motivation out of the players in that you're not going to have a crowd pulling you through it. You've got to create your own sort of fire in your belly. And if you don't have that inner like will to win, like they said, those old you know, United teams under Ferguson had, you know, we had 11 winners out on the field. Yeah. You have to like forget, you know, just block the lack of the crowd out and go, we need to win today. I don't think we have winners in our team. I, I look at your El Ghazis, I look at the Trezor Gays. You know, Grealish thinking more about his hair than uh, the game, maybe. Well, to take the Man United teams, those those Man United teams that you described, could, and we experienced this many, many times, you could get to 80 minutes and not be confident. You could be winning 2-0 and, and, and yeah. be confident. They were not beaten. Um, yeah, you could play them on the arc and still lose. Oh, we've 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 got a group of players who we really are soft. Well, we haven't got huge squad depth that 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 showed, and I think that when when some of the subs came on, that you you know for everything that's likable about Nakamba, um, you saw straight away what the problem was. For everything that's maybe likable technically about Trezeguet, the guy's bereft of pace, and and, and for the for those on the pitch that Grealish, you, you know, uh, uh, having seen the news today, you have to wonder is was he slightly affected by the fact that he's he's got a court appearance pending? Um, and Al Ghazi is is woefully inconsistent. On the one hand, he's bursting forward and delivering a, s- a supreme cross at pace that's really dangerous. The next minute, he's he's trying to think the near impossible. You know, he's trying to weave around and trying to move the ball through through gaps that aren't there. And yeah, another issue is is like off the pitch. I mean, the social media, the club social media, and all you know, a lot of fan channels. These players are. Are hyped and hyped and hyped, and obviously they do see this, do see themselves on social media as like some kind of gods. And here we are in the relegation zone, and they're, they're not so kind of godly, well, are the they? I mean, we're, we're what ten, nine games out now from the end of the season, and we're we're second bottom, and we're in a position now where the games are going to come thick and fast with the format that we've got. I mean, July is crazy. I mean, this this is why it would have been nice to win this one, and then. You've got that extra game experience of this whole pandemic situation, football, to take in against Chelsea. And that's where you get your your lift up and you get out that bottom uh, three. And and that's how I saw the path to survival. After that result, not necessarily the result against Sheffield United, because if Sheffield United were, let's say, playing at the best, you know, if you get a draw Mm. against them, you go, yeah, hard fought draw. But you, you saw that as a, this is a wasted opportunity. And, and a little bit inside me died, I must admit, in terms well, we, of optimism. We know that's because we know there's going to be harder games. And yeah, I think allowing for the fact that there'll be some freak results, one, borne out by the circumstances, and then and, and secondly, secondary, uh, borne out by the fact that I think there'll be some dead rubber matches that inevitably creep in as, as the as the fixtures wind down. The one thing that did occur to me between between the end of the game and, and us talking tonight was was that our relegation last time was it, it, it felt inevitable because we were we were such a poor team and and we you know we couldn't buy a win. This time I I'd be I, I'd be angry if we went down because I, I do think there's enough quality in the team and I think it would be through not applying ourselves in games like Sheffield United that will ultimately do it. And Arsenal and those sorts of moments. Exactly my point, Chris. That it's not it's not going to be the last ten games that gets us relegated. But I think I'd be really pissed off if we don't seize our opportunity to to somehow claw ourselves to fourth bottom. Yeah, I mean, let's we, we won't get into that doomsday scenario at the moment in terms of who's responsible, etc. And there. 
it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Picture the scene. All of your mates around, you've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. True, but this situation could have been a hell of a lot worse and... Uh... A lot of people would have given up already if it wasn't for old <laughs> Hawkeye. Great segue. I went down with my shears before kickoff. Saved our bacon. That's a bit of an understatement. I mean, you know, people say, well, yeah, but there's still a half to go. But yeah, but it's a bad time to lose a goal. That was like two minutes before half time. And it, you're not getting that lift of the crowd when you get back on the pitch for the second half either. So uh, let's say uh, made a big difference in terms of how we're all feeling at the moment. Bizarre. It was bizarre, and uh, I think it was a weird one, especially as, as the halftime whistle blew, because it was a huge let-off, but you couldn't help <laughs> pondering how, with all of the technology, and, and, I'll, and I'll fall back to my, my default point in, in, in Match Club, really, it, it was it looked a goal live. And I, what I don't understand is how, how and I'm happy he did, referee Oliver, who, who he... He deferred to the to his to his watch and um, it's Casio. <laughs> you know, hadn't had its battery changed since 1980. It looked to go. I mean, I mean, the fact of the matter is that Nyland was almost in the inside side netting at one point. I mean, Hawkeye says it was. You know, it remained functional throughout, and it was where the keeper was and the post and some player were in. It was in. You know, whatever. But the fundamental thing is, surely this is what VAR is for. Yeah. 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 Yeah, because that is an error. It's like the ref, all he has to do is call upstairs and go, can you have a look at that? Whereas it seems to be VAR is a one-way street, isn't it? The ref can't refer something. It's they just put it in his ear and you think, oh, Michael, you might want to take a second opinion on this one. It's If if, if VAR's not there for that, Jesus Christ, it's like you know, it's a line decision. I thought we'd got past this. The Premier League, so desperate to just crunch the money and get this shit show without fans on the road that 
And then you look at that something like that happens and you go, what is this? What, what are they doing? Can't they, you know, this, this is not that hard to solve. The millions watching this game know instinctively that is a goal. Yeah. Now, the whole sort of phrase, the, you know, the buzzwords of, of this whole COVID for football have been sporting integrity. Yeah. And within the first 45 minutes of the very first game, the integrity of the whole competition has been put, you know, down the toilet because of technology which is meant to be foolproof well that has to be one of the single worst errors ever var or or otherwise that that that, that's happened and yeah sporting integrity is the thing and it's and it it undermines it i mean i'm I'm on record across many channels it's it underlines for me that bbc itv channel four whichever i mean live (laughs) tv you take your pick um (laughs) <laughs> but the, the the point is, right? Just parking us as uh, taking off the the claret and blue tinted glasses. It's you know we have been afflicted on the other side of those decisions all season, and I, I don't I don't take the view that things balance out. I just think you get a shit decision actually. And I'm you know I'm in favour of systems like this to cut out the crap. And <laughs> if they're blind to it, then it's not the system. It's it's the Premier League and who bring out you know these rules that don't seem to work they don't trigger VAR to happen because if VAR was used that goal is a goal I mean how many times have I used the example whenever we've talked about technology of rugby rugby have just got the use of the technology and the the lack of ambiguity in the rules perfect you know Michael Oliver can literally go upstairs and just go I think it might be a goal can you just check you know it's like is it is it goal or no goal but anyway, let's let's not turn this into another VAR chat. I mean, the funniest thing about this was, uh, and and I like Chris Wilder when he said, "I think the goalkeeper was in the whole end." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. and it's a shame actually because speaking of the goalkeeper, Nyland had actually had so little to do and had very little to do all game. You think you look at the incident as a, from a purely a goalkeeping point of view. Even if he'd have flapped at the ball, it wouldn't have gone in. He could have just literally palmed it over the bar and it yeah, the corner. It, it, was it Horse that knocked him in uh, to the Davis, goal? Davis, 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 sorry, yeah. What a great goal of the whole... I mean... Uh... <laughs> Clinical finish. There's, maybe there's hope for Davis on the evidence of that. <laughs> it was the it was the secret spy face that, that Nyland pulled as he retrieved oh, the no, ball yeah. onto off the phone, onto the post and back around it as, and looking around um, suspiciously. As he did it, at least I mean he flapped at something uh, in the second half. But I think you know he'll see the clean sheet, and uh, I think that'll be enough to have him keep his place in the next game. Uh, I, I would say. I think so, and on the basis of his his form early season and, the, and that Leicester semi final, he he does deserve it, and yeah, we can't agreed. we we mustn't judge him on that one calamitous moment, must we? Lest we forget that we that's the first clean sheet we've kept in all competitions since Boxing Day. Yeah, that's that's a massive stat. It is. It is. Along with uh, Mr. Grealish, it's still topping the table with most fouls this season, 131, more than any other single player. In a, in a single Premier League campaign since Opta started its data in 1998-99 season, and this season isn't hasn't even finished yet. It's the highest since Bosco Balaban. <laughs> but no, that, I mean, that's an astonishing fact, considering we've got that nine games to go. That was the strange thing, you know, Grealish, for all his fouls, actually, I didn't think got fouled that much. He got a couple of clatterings, but he didn't get the normal sort of free kicks in and around the box, particularly. We, you know, we couldn't we couldn't get Grealish into positions where, really with any of the midfielders, you know, you look at where Horahan's at his best, and McGinn and Grealish are all at their best in and around the penalty area. We didn't get them there 
very mm. often. Finally, on the stats, Horahan actually created uh, seven chances, which is the joint most by a Villa player in the Premier League this season. Grealish uh, also created seven against Southampton uh, in December. But Horahan was all right, just uh, in summation on his performance. I'd agree. I, th- I actually thought his set piece delivery was much better. I agree. I thought it was quite dangerous from corners until he attempted the Westwood sized one midway through the second half. And- yeah. If we just single out one more player before we uh, move on, I'd probably say Douglas Louise. That tempo was dropped a little bit. He now understands man on, and uh, I thought he had a yeah. decent enough performance, uh, especially in the first half. I think the game suited him, didn't it? It was the kind of game that would work for him, where he wasn't necessarily you know Sheffield don't play a high press. Um, he can take the ball off the you know your Mings and Horns of this world, and he can kind of try and run the game, and it allows Grealish to be higher up the field. He earned his wages uh, towards the end of the second half when Courtney House uh, passed the up. ball. I think he was trying to reach Mings. Yeah, makes makes up so much ground uh, to make the interception and has to come around the guy to do it as well. Uh, yeah. It was- Great challenge, and I mean that—that that was one singular moment. But I just to echo the points, I, I thought it was a really classy performance. I thought it hit both both Luis and Huran had to play so deep, though. Again, yeah. it reminded me when we had this bizarre formation where we had Lansbury and Huran in the championship so so deep, and it really affects us going up the pitch. That's a conversation for another day. But um, yeah, Luis and, and oh, I thought Huran had a solid game too. Just quickly, what are you thinking in terms of the Chelsea game? I mean, let's pretend that everybody's fit and ready to go. What are you looking at in terms of up top and midfield? I'm, I'm thinking Elmo might come in for Konza. It depends how defensive, because I thought defensively Konza had a very good game, but the reality is he's going to offer you next to nothing going forward. He's a very much in the you know the Carlos Cuellar <laughs> style right back, isn't he? Where he's he's not you know going to get to the byline and whip across in like Gilbert can or like El Mahamedi can. And I think El Mahamedi and El Ghazi can be a bit more of a, an, or even Trezeguet can be a bit a better uh, a better partnership. So what about um, midfield? I wouldn't be surprised if the midfield stays the same. Yeah, same I, I, I could see him not changing it too much. I mean, I think the only change, if we if we were in a position to, I don't think he'll be back, is I'd put Gilbert in. Um, I think he's, uh, and it's Engels, is definitely out for two yeah. weeks. I think sort of ta- tactically, the obvious change, the first sub would have been to bring Trezeguet on for McGinn, get mm. Trezeguet out wide and put Grealish in the middle of the field. That's the thing. However it's going to work system-wise, we need to find a way to get McGinn, Grealish, Hurahan 10, 15, 20 yards further up the field where they can hurt teams. Because I actually think Chelsea's back four can be got at. I'd be, I'd be tempted to play uh, Grealish off Davis in like a yeah. number 10 type role. Yeah. Almost just give him just you just give him a free roll because there was there was numerous times in the first twenty minutes where the system worked well where you could see how Garzi would pop up on the left. It was a very fluid midfield because you know McGinn naturally tends to drift out wide to the right. You know, does the old sort of Beyonce stick his backside in turn and runs in field? Didn't do that once in the game. You know, he tried it a couple of times, but just couldn't quite get up to speed. Yeah, I mean Grealish, if he is given that free roll, then. There's got to be a plan to how to utilise McGinn if he starts to uh, occupy Chelsea. Sorry, Grealish occupied Chelsea. I'm really interested, actually, that the, the big battle that I think will be great to watch will be Abraham against Mings. I think that'll be a really interesting battle. And obviously, it's a shame for, for Abraham because I actually think I was personally looking forward to him coming back to Villa Park because I think he'd have got a really, really good reception from the Villa fans. Um, so it's yeah. a shame for him, for, obviously, to be behind closed doors. Anyway, we we shall see. Uh, we'll cross that bridge. But I think we're needing something from that game 100%. I think we need to set out to win. Well, we need to set out to win every one of these games. But uh, 
just the in the advantage column as as mentioned the fact that we've had that extra game uh, of this setup under our belts uh, gives us a slight uh, advantage in in terms of uh, in that respect anyway so we need to take advantage because once everybody's had an exp- you know experience that's suddenly nullified instantly right shall we move on to uh, finish the show with some underrated and overrated We'll just do two this time because obviously football is back, so we actually take up a bit of the show talking about that. Uh, for your uh, delights, we have two uh, more fringy players, Darius Kabichi and also uh, Mr. Guy Whittingham, both of kind of a similar era, the Ron Atkinson uh, time. Which shall we start with first? Let's go with Mr. Kabichi. Mr. Kabichi, who uh, he cost us 200,000, which uh, at the time we got Ekiog for 40,000. So we could have just bought four Hugo Ekiogs instead. I think that, that would have sorted out the defense there and there. Yeah, five for that money. Five, David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. I thought Ron might, might prefer to just use that extra 40,000 on a new watch or something. <laughs> yeah, a tan. <laughs> but that was, uh, I mean, we were talking about this earlier on off air. That was Ron Atkinson using the David Platt money to buy a lot of squad filler at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think Darius kicked in, I think it was about the fifth game. I don't know, that was when it timed in with him arriving, but he came from Legier Warsaw, who were traditionally like the best team in Poland mm-hmm. and, you know, it's occasionally uh, sparkled in European competitions but he played that f- i think it was the fifth game he started of that season 1991 stroke 92 played a good 20 odd games 20 22 23 games on the trot and then disappeared pretty much uh from there on in i think Earl barrett came along and and that was the end of that and Earl barrett was a relatively big money signing at the time is 1.7 mm-hmm. million so he was you know, he was coming to play yeah and uh I think he he stayed on the books and the next season, I think he played once. uh, I think he came on as a sub in the last minute against Ipswich in the League Cup. And that was his only contribution for that season. Then uh, disappeared, uh, went on loan to Sunderland because he was squeezed out of the team. And he actually, that was his main team uh, while he was in England with Sunderland. I think he played over 120 games. Then it was like a slow decline Wolves, Carlisle, Darlington, where he had very little game time. But in terms of on the pitch, to me, he exemplified, he signs and you think, oh, hello, you know, finally we got a right back. And you just think, well, you watch him, you watch him a few games and you you just think, is that all you have to do to be a professional footballer and pick up a nice (laughs) wage? Just to be like really functional, not actually do anything out of the ordinary. You're actually watching him thinking he's not actually doing anything to justify his wage you could slip in a very fit sunday league player and you know not notice any difference and you know that was a worrying thing it always confused me as a you know when i was younger thinking oh shit maybe i should have taken this football seriously because <laughs> actually if, as long as you've got your fitness and you know you're reasonably let's say smart in how you approach the game uh, you, and you with your towering an, height david yeah you can make a nice living here without actually really doing much I know. I look. I look back on a you know a player like Kabich, and you. And it's it's all in context, really, not necessarily personally just to him, but you know it was obviously Atkinson's first season. And it was in a sort of a transition between you know, the end of the Graham Taylor team and the the Joe Engloss mm. era. Mm-hmm. Atkinson brought in about 13, 14 new players that season. And when you look and you look at the players that we actually brought in, they would go on to be the core of the the ninety four Cup winning team. Mm-hmm. And you look at sort of Atkinson, Ekiog. 
Sean mm. Teal, Richardson, Staunton, Parker, Earl Barrett, Bosnich. They all arrived, and it was like the end of the likes of sort of your Cascarinos and Cowans and Kevin Gages. It was a, a big transitional season, and it was. I, did, I think you know, we discussed this earlier. It, you could maybe argue it was the first season, certainly in Villa modern history, of when you could really apply the Villa bought a squad mm. as opposed to like you know, yeah, starting eleven and three or four subs. And then you had the youth team. This was what you had. You're starting to try and build a bit of depth in your squad. Um, you know, you brought Les Seeley and Bosnich to the club, and you already had Bosn. Um, you already had Nigel Spink there. They had three goalkeeper options. So I, th- I think with someone like Kabichi, he just you know didn't didn't quite work out as best he would have. But then you look at the other players he brought in. Well, he had the right back shirt for yeah. you know over 20 games, and then uh, obviously it decided that Earl Barrett was yeah the way to go, even though he was really recognised as a centre back yeah. at that time. And then he got the shirt in the Premier when it became the Premier League, and he and he held it, didn't he, for sort of a couple of yeah. seasons. That, that says a lot, doesn't it? That, that we we redeployed a centre half, and Barrett was was a was a recognised. Uh, you know that was his position, really. I mean, we, we've said in previous pods as well, and, and this this name does stick out as uh, for what I'm about to say. Really, that there was a resounding fashion in the early '90s for trying to acquire European continental footballers, and he, he definitely falls into that category. And I, and I think that the the evidence for that is that he got 25 games at Villa was was found out and falls down. I mean, I've, we didn't haven't had time to do. Uh super super research on this but uh one thing i noticed that over about nine years before he came to villa between 82 91 he'd got 46 caps for the polish national team so he, you know played reasonable amount of games over those that period of time soon as he signed for villa never played for poland again <laughs> now i don't know if that was yes. like i am re- i am retiring from uh international football sorry see you later poland or if it was like poland saying Nah, not again, mate. You're not playing for us ever again. Now you've signed for them. <laughs> I don't know which way the cookie crumbles on that one. Or if it was just he got the big move, got the relative paycheck of English football, and um, mm. and just re- and just relaxed. So after he kind of dwindled down the leagues, he, he got into. I mean, he was he was serious about football because he got into uh, management uh, via some coaching positions at uh, going back to the club that we'd got him from uh, Legia Warsaw. Uh, and he played most of his games in Poland for that, for Warsaw uh, before he came to Villa. But an interesting thing is he, he, he had about 12 different jobs, most of them as managers across various different Polish teams, but he never seemed to keep the same job mm-hmm. for more than a year. And he went 12 jobs across the Polish league, but not one of those jobs lasted a year, even though, you know, maybe he'd been at a club for two years because he had two different roles or three different roles. He didn't seem to be somebody that, uh, set down roots and got on with people maybe i don't know yeah he was uh coach of uh Gdansk, who were in the, the second division at the time and he uh this is going back a few years over a decade he got done by the place in some bribery scandal it involved uh, i think it's something to do with the sale of uh, a sports center in warsaw and he was suspended from coaching and there's always something with these villa <laughs> alumina <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some, there was something shady after the uh, the bribery thing. He carried on working, so it didn't. It was obviously wasn't a serious thing. And uh, currently, he's uh, still managing. Well, I, I presume he's still managing. Last seen at Olympia Grzados, 
some my pronunciations way out there, but that's they, they were in the second level of the Polish league. Underrated or overrated, though? For the Villa, he didn't really stick around and battle away. He got loaned out to uh, Sunderland. So as I've said, I mean, there's there's no no surprises where this is going. I'm saying definitely uh, overrated. Overrated. Yes, overrated. Right. To somebody who came to Villa with uh, a bit of a track record because he was mm. banging them in yep. for Portsmouth. He was very much so. Very much so. And But he had a bit of competition in front of him at Villa. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you you take up the story, Mr. Bud. So Whittingham was a, one of these kind of, he came through non-league. You know, I think he, I get the feeling with him, he was one of these lads, a little bit like maybe a Jamie Vardy, but without quite such the, the glamour of it all. But he came up through non-league and really worked his way up the divisions, got his sort of bigger break at Portsmouth. I mean, his scoring record was insane. Oh, it's uh, absolutely incredible scoring record. I think he's, in, in all games, historically, he scored 88 goals in 116 games, which is, mm. you know, I mean, that is iconic territory for most clubs. That's um, why we signed him. Yeah, and, we, and I think the, the season before we had him, so the 92-3 season, he'd scored 42 goals in 46 games. I mean, that is... You know, in an era of sort of Shearers and Ferdinands and Fowlers, that is that stands up against anyone. So he deserved his big yeah. Premier League move to Villa. So he was a you know one point six million signing. Sort of started okay at Villa. I think he he scored in his first start at uh, Goodison Park, and then his career at Villa just just never really got going. Obviously, he would have always had Saunders and Atkinson ahead of him in the pecking order. But he must have fancied his chances. And I mean, in the context, also, you've got to remember that Dalian Atkinson was known in that period as, as a, a sick note. So we did need uh, a third striker of, you know, decent calibre. I mean, of course, we would have had a young, you know, Dwight York coming through at that point as well. So I think Yorkie would have been ahead of him potentially in the pecking order. Yeah, no, but he was playing right wing at that stage. He was a winger. So he was very much the third choice striker. You know, he found himself out on loan within the first season at Villa, which is quite baffling, really, unless he just thought, if I'm not starting, I want to go and play. Ended up at Wolves in the, the, the second half of his first season, which you don't find happens very often. Went to Molyneux and then he'd, he'd kind of left Villa halfway through the next season, you know, when when, um, when Brian Little arrived. I would say he's in the same, I was going to say bin, I suppose you can say bin. The same bin as your Tommy, <laughs> as your Tommy Johnson's, like not legitimate 100% starter, but uh, can potentially do a job off the bench. I mean, I think the difference with players like, you know, sort of Tommy Johnson and maybe like, uh, I don't know, like a Julian Joachim is they would come off the bench and impact a game. You know, Tommy yeah. Johnson, win you a match or if you'd start him you'd always fancy him to score Whittingham he, he never never necessarily took his opportunities when he did get them and, and the opportunities were few and far between and just never got that run of games or never got the momentum that maybe he's just one of those players like at Portsmouth where when he feels like he's the main man a bit like David Nugent you get them often don't you these guys who can bang in a hatload of goals at a certain level he's the main man you know, you, Steve Bull of course never ever got a shot in the Premier League which is baffling really considering his goal scoring record Ross McCormack. <laughs> but I would say that, 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 that a Ross McCormack and, and a Steve Bull and a Guy Whittingham are a, a long way apart. And that, that's because the, the, the one thing I remember about Whittingham is, and it captivated me as, as a youngster, was that he, he didn't start, he wasn't a perfect, he wasn't a, well, he wasn't even an amateur footballer until he was 23. Mm. So, you know, he appears, I think it's he, he's he's finished his, his military service or whatever he was doing for the British Army. And then he appears in non-league, you know, so that's 23. But 
It's it's 26, 27, I think, before he signs for Portsmouth, something like that. Well, Ian Wright was a late bloomer as well. Mm, and Dublin as well, I think, if, if memory yeah. serves me right. And th- that's the difference. You almost wonder that he, he appears and he's got, he was the right stuff, I guess, that he, but, a, but a late bloomer. And my, my memory of him for Villa was that, we're just talking about Kabichi, and he played 25 games, but he had a, a run of 25 games. Whittingham always felt like he as you guys were just saying that he never really got you know he was never the main man and was was moved on quickly and and you look at how at that time at that time of his career you know he was he was well regarded he went on loan to Wolves when Wolves were were, were a division 2 club or a division 1 club at that point and and then played for Sheffield Wednesday for you know the substantive part of his career after that which were actually is the la- is the latter part of what you would consider to be a, a, a striker's career now yeah and they were actually um, his best years, you know. He was really highly regarded at, at mm-hmm. Wednesday. Uh, I think I remember him scoring against Villa, actually. Not as good as his Pompey years. No, no, no but he was well, well liked at Wednesday. I, I do remember him scoring against against his uh, former side you know, at Villa. Mm. No, that never happens. <laughs> <laughs> no, ever. <laughs> but he, he was likeable. And, and I mean, from my point of view, just to, just to wrap up, I think he was underrated. Oh, I was going to say under well, he wasn't. It was like just good everywhere else, but at Villa, mm. he. Uh, we, we have the ability to do that to footballers, David. You yeah, know. it's kind of <laughs> just took the life out of them <laughs> and their soul. I'm, I mean, I'm trying to go back in my memory banks to think if he got a fair crack of the whip at Villa, or if we didn't play to his mm. uh, style. But I'm going to say he was overrated because I think I'm going to side to that what we just mentioned about the player who just didn't make it at the next step up, which he really yeah. needed to make. Yeah, I mean, I look, in, at that era, a £1.6 million signing is not a massive signing, but it's still a statement. And I think it's the, when you when you look just down the stats alone, you would say, well, there's a player who's had one good, one very good season at the league below and has got a big move because of it and then hasn't pushed on, which you, you do see a lot. You know, his lack of opportunities is kind of justified from Atkinson's point of view because they won a trophy. Yeah. And, 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 and he was trying to get into a team that had finished second in the league the year before. But this is another thing. That's why I'm saying overrated because he was coming into a team that needed to go up one more step and they needed a stronger squad as well to take on United's. Yes. You know, going into his second season when you're thinking, well, he, maybe he's had a difficult run, but he's gone out mm-hmm. and loaned a Second season, he's going to need to push on. Atkinson had gone out and bought John Fashionu and a young Neil Lamptey, hadn't he? And mm-hmm. York was just starting to, to creep up the, the pecking order as well. So before he'd even got going, he found himself right down the bottom of the list. Yeah, but he also didn't prove he, he had it because there's no way, uh, A, you're going to fear John Fashionu unless you're in the fight with him. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but B, uh, you know, Ron Atkinson's probably not thinking about getting another striker in if uh, Whittingham's firing on all cylinders and, you know, Saunders is and Atkinson. There's ob- there was obviously a need there that uh, this guy wasn't up to it. Agreed. Right. Um, so I'm going uh, overrated because of the expectations of him coming in and the opportunity he had to uh, really push on from his goal-scoring days at Pompey. Dan? He's gone underrated. Underrated from me. Yeah, I- I'm actually going to... If if there was the option to go just rated, no, no, you could, he's always trying to sit on the fence. Any opportunity, I would say slightly underrated just for his lack of opportunities. You know, yes. anybody who can score forty two in forty six games has got something about them. Yeah. Is it just the classic curse of Villa? Villa pulling a Villa. <laughs> I'm, I'm sticking by my club. <laughs> I'm saying he's not good enough. He was not. He was not good enough for my club. I mean, the fact that he left Villa and didn't go on to bigger, better things 
probably speaks for itself. Right, that's enough of that uh, for another episode. Uh, we'll, we'll anybody who has a uh, suggestions for uh, the next underrated or overrated, do get them in. Uh, we're not doing a pantheon uh, of status uh, to end this one because we're too tired. It's one o'clock in the morning and uh, we've had enough. Uh, just a quick uh, correction, actually. We did say that uh, Juan Pablo Engel scored a hat-trick against the Wolves. Uh, actually, Bud said, I don't think it was the Wolves. And uh, Dan said, no, I think it was. So it was two to one. Bud was outvoted, but actually Bud was right. He should have stood up for himself. <laughs> wow. It was it was Wickham in the five nil trouncing uh, we gave them in the uh, in the yellow kit, wasn't it? In that horrible yellow MG Rover kit. Yeah, I'm sure uh, Engel would have preferred to have scored a hat trick against the Wolves. So uh... I've googled it. I actually cannot believe my mind tells me it was a hat trick. So I'm quite happy it was a hat trick as far as I'm concerned. Yes, my my mind does as well. I don't believe why, this can't be right. Why does my mind tell me that as well? Didn't he score I think he scored two braces against Wolves that se- that season. I think he scored two against them um at Villa Park and then obviously scored two at the Molyneux as well. Here we are again, one o'clock in the morning, masturbating over Juan Pablo Engel. Late night porn. <laughs> right, uh, with that uh as our parting image. We will now uh, get out of here, but please do uh, subscribe on Spotify or iTunes, wherever you listen to this. Please do uh, spread the word uh, and also, you know, retweet and uh, share art- share articles and that kind of stuff if you, if you like them. I know you're not the type of people to do that. We, we know that because there's lots of you, but uh, you wouldn't think we, it's like the invisible society almost at times. Which sometimes we do like that, but... I know, it's, it's all good. It's just uh, spread the word is the main thing. Uh, yep. I was going to say if you uh, meet your friends down at uh, Villa Park, but that's not going to happen. But uh, if you're feeling a bit uh, left out on the lurch uh, during these behind-closed-door games uh, and you've been a patron before, it's now. It's, it's a whole new world now with Match Club, so uh, please please do check into that. Right, until next time, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from them. Goodbye. Goodbye. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.